0: Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to yet another special Empire Podcast. We're delighted now to bring you the full 50-minute chat with William Friedkin. I will say one thing, though. We do talk extensively about all his movies. If you haven't seen To Live and Die in L.A., we do talk about a huge spoiler in it. So the minute you hear me say the words, To Live and Die in L.A., to William Friedkin, about 38 minutes in, either skip the next four minutes, because we give away a major plot point, Or maybe do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, go and see *To Live and Die in L.A.* before you listen to the podcast. Believe me, you will not regret it. And now, without any further to do, as Carlito Brigante once said, I present to you the full William Friedkin interview. He was talking to myself and Phil de We are delighted to have in the Empire Pod Booth a legend. Uh, William Friedkin. Hello, Where? sir. Well, oh. yeah, right there, right there. Oh, okay. It is you. It is you, sir. You should uh, have warned me. There's a
1: legend here today.
0: <laughs> well, how do, you, how do you feel about that when people introduce you as the legend? I, mean, I did a Q&A with you
1: last <laughs> night. Introduce you as the great William Friedkin. So, uh, I just divorced myself from that characterization because mm. I don't think of myself that way at all. Was there ever a point
0: in your career that you did? When no. You, no.
1: No. I mean, there are obviously points in my career when I've been more arrogant and uh stupid you, you know enough to uh think more of myself than uh, I should have mm-hmm. but I don't anymore you know I, and and uh, as a matter of fact as a film director you're just another bloke making a living you know you make a good living when you make a film mm-hmm. and th- that separates you somewhat people see your name on a screen but you're the same guy I'm the same guy I was in high school
0: Well, there you go. No fundamental changes.
1: Not really, no. I still find the same things uh, funny and the same things tragic. Mm -hmm. You know, I still have basically the same attitudes I had when I was much younger.
0: Okay, interesting. I mean, uh, I was going to introduce you as not just William Friedkin, but at William Friedkin, because you are now on Twitter.
1: Yes, I've been enjoying it as well It's interesting I mean, some of the stuff is obviously rubbish You know, some of the people are deranged who are uh, on the social network But then, uh, every once in a while you get uh, a little message from someone quite unexpectedly that you really admire like this fellow Ian Rankin the oh yes, uh, detective novelist who created Inspector Rebus mm. a- and he and I have been communicating via Twitter and he came to the screening of Killer Joe in Edinburgh Really, and I met him but I had only known him th- obviously before through his books yeah. and then on Twitter and because of that you know I got to meet him and that, that's always very interesting to, to uh, and, and there are people like Paulo Coelho on, wow. on Twitter the fellow who wrote The Alchemist yes. which has sold about I don't know 20 million books or more And it's interesting to see them communicating with, um, you know, the rest of us, with the general masses of people.
0: So what attracted you to Twitter? Was it that idea that you could, you know, converse with a a fan base or
1: or show them? I can find out what people are interested in about my films, some of what troubles them about my films. But I do get feedback. And, you know, if you run a movie somewhere, let's say in Thailand... I'm serious. You don't have any idea what the response of people is. there. They're not about to write to you or call you on the telephone, or uh, they seldom will send you a letter that gets to you. Hmm. But on Twitter, I, I get stuff from Japan, from Thailand, uh, from many places where I find out what they're interested in or curious about, and that interests me hmm. and, and then often will exchange information that I would otherwise have no access to. Unless I went there,
0: yeah, absolutely fascinating. And uh, the Ian Rankin thing—does this indicate that maybe you'd be interested in, a, in in a Rebus film at some point? Because you've, I, you've been drawn to, to cops for a long, long time.
1: Well, they have a television series on the air here. I understand yeah. with with Rebus. Uh, I know I, I like reading his books. He's, he's written almost thirty novels yeah. about this character, and they're they're all of a pretty damn high quality. Um, He's one of the best around as a detective fiction writer, but no, I'd never thought about doing a film of that character because he's been TV serialized, you know, and that often, you know, spoils it for a feature film, but you know, who knows, one day he might write another kind of a script for me.
2: Did you always have that interest in, in, in Cops? In particular, I mean, pre-Popeye Doyle, you mentioned uh, the, the sort of policeman and the criminal, which is something kind of Michael Mann examined in heat as well, two sides of this sort of same coin. Is that something you kind of grew up with, the fascination when you were in Chicago in those days?
1: My uncle was a very famous Chicago cop. As a matter of fact, he was a crooked cop. His name was Harry Lang, and he had a partner, another detective, named Harry Miller. And this was back in the late 1920s early 1930s and Harry Lang my uncle and who was a fearsome fellow big strong ball-headed he looked like bullhead you know <laughs> and he's very rich on a cop's salary and I always thought wow if you're a cop you're a very rich man because he was <laughs> and uh, it he was sent in by the mayor of Chicago then Anton Cermak to go out and capture and bring in the guy who was the most celebrated villain at that time who had taken over the Capone mob when Al Capone went to prison and this fellow's name was Frank Nitti Mm NITTI and my uncle Harry Lang and Harry Miller his partner they knew frank nitty they were in and out of his office all the time they were on the take yeah. so they had free access to nitty they could go right into his office they went in and my uncle shot nitty several times in the stomach and then shot himself in the arm to make it look as though nitty had fired at him first and nitty lived in prison through uh, this onslaught of wow. bullets and Then, uh, because of various uh, corrupt practices that came out of that whole situation, my uncle was busted off the police force, and he became the bodyguard of Mayor Cermak. And Mayor Cermak went down to Florida to uh, a convention where the newly elected president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt, 1932, Mm was giving a speech in Florida. And Sir Mac was up on the dais with him, and my uncle was his bodyguard. And a guy stood up in the crowd, a guy called Gus Zangara, who was thought to be uh, a crazy anarchist. And they believed or reported that he was there to kill Roosevelt. But he instead shot and killed Frank Nitti, while my uncle was Nitti's bodyguard. And it turned out much later that this Zangara fellow was actually sent from Sicily to go over and assassinate Cermak. Not Roosevelt, but the man he was aiming at. Right. And my uncle's career as a bodyguard ended soon after I can that. <laughs> and he opened a tavern in Chicago called the Sip and Bottle, where it was packaged liquor and... A bar, And I used to work there as a kid. And I met all these cops, most of them bent. And my uncle, who it turned out, was bent, but fascinating. Mm. And that's wherein my fascination with cops began.
0: Because it, it, it runs throughout your career, from Kinderman and the Exorcist, obviously through Popeye Doyle, you know, to Live and Die in L.A., and now Killer Joe.
1: Well, I've never done anything, though, about my uncle, and and that would be fascinating. Yeah. You know, police police work is fascinating because, you know, a guy straps on a, a gun and puts on a badge and gets up in the morning goes out and he might not come back that night yeah you know it's not like the rest of us who have a regular job yeah
2: it's commonly kind of talked about that the mafia watched the godfather and then they, they started trying to emulate what francis Ford coppola was showing in that film and i wondered if you'd had a similar experience with the french connection whether that maybe police officers were looking at popeye Doyle and thinking maybe i should be a bit a like, bit like him
1: well, uh, the, the French Connection is a very popular film with policemen all over the world. You know, I've met them, I've been told. I was, in a, I was directing an opera in Florence, Italy, and we were at this restaurant that was frequented by politicians and mob guys together. And there was the head of the narcotics squad, a narcotics detective, and the head of the Florence Mafia sitting at the same table. And someone told them that the director of the French Connection was there. And so the waiter came over and and said, those gentlemen would love to meet you. And so I went over and they were fascinating, you know, and they were all admirers of the French Connection. (laughs) And they were on both sides of the law, so to speak.
0: Um, you said last night um, that you wrote a letter to John Frankenheimer to yes. dissuade or try to dissuade him from directing French Connection 2. Had that offer been made to you before you wrote that letter? Had, had the studio tried to get you to do it? no
1: offer made to me because it was apparent from the word go that I wouldn't do a sequel to the mm-hmm. French Connection. I made that very clear that I felt there was no more to say about these characters. It mm. was all wrapped up. The, the French guy actually did get away. Yeah. He eluded the New York police. and what? So they'd made a sequel where the guy goes to France to chase him. Yeah. And I guess he kills him. I, I really didn't see French Connection. Have you, you've it. never seen
0: it? Or, no. Or, yeah, see I've
1: it. seen parts of it. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll be sitting uh, at an airport and some of it. That looks familiar. These characters <laughs> look familiar. Oh, Aren't they my characters? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but they're in a different context.
0: Like, wanna- it's interesting because uh, obviously Roy Scheider didn't come back for that either. He didn't, you know, want to do French Connection too. And but but Gene did. I mean, do you do you understand the mentality of people who do want to do sequels and maybe want to come back? You know, well,
1: or- Gene did it for the money. <laughs> there's some, there's a reason. You know, Gene was a wonderful actor, but Gene got paid thirty five thousand mm-hmm. dollars, which is a pittance, not to many people. Uh, at the other end of this podcast, but it's a small amount of money for an actor. Mm. He got $35,000 for The French Connection. And I'm guessing, but he probably got a half a million dollars for the sequel because it was a big financial success and he won an Academy Award for it. So it was very tempting. Mm. Later in his career, he didn't do that sort of thing.
0: No. Absolutely, but
1: you you said last night
0: as well that you have never seen any of the Exorcist sequels or indeed, fortunately, prequels.
1: not. That's why I still look young.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so did you? Were you tempted to write a letter to John Burman, for example, when he was about to embark on Exorcist Two?
1: It would have done no good. <laughs> you know, he was set on his course, yeah. and you know, he did what he did. Mm. And, you know, no, and I didn't know him. Uh, I met him afterwards, or possibly even during or just before, but he was going to do it no matter what.
0: Mm. Because it's interesting watching, looking at your career, because you you never have really repeated yourself, not just in terms of doing sequels, but leaping around from genre to genre, subject to subject. Is that clearly a conscious thing on your part?
1: Yeah, if I've done something, I don't want to do something similar. Mm. Because a part of being a filmmaker is, well, it's an education for me and an adventure you know it's a process of discovery as are the operas that I've directed yeah. you learn a lot about another culture about the people who created these works and in opera and in film every subject that I undertake whether it's exorcism or corruption or uh, police brutality or any sort of uh, Criminal or unusual behavior Mm. leads me off in another direction. I remember doing research for a film I made called Rampage uh, at a hospital for the criminally insane in Chicago, the Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center, where they had a pilot program where they had guys, serial killers, mass murderers, who were not in prison. They were living in apartments outside a prison and they had jobs and Mm -hmm. some of them were in relationships and all they were doing was going to the medical center twice a week and getting some therapy and some drugs to modify their Mm -hmm. behavior they were clockwork oranges and they would not harm a flea and I remember hearing about this and this is what provoked me to want to make that film what I had I remember being in a session with one of these guys who had killed his mother in cold blood. And he was sort of really pacified. And he was given a Rorschach test while I was in the room observing it. And the cards were being held up, and I'd see these Rorschach cards. and the doctor would ask him what he saw and what he was seeing was flowers and butterflies and what I was seeing is dragons and demons <laughs> and here's this killer this guy who murdered his mother in cold blood right. oh it looks like a butterfly <laughs> you know and so the therapy was working You're Right. Yeah. that fellow actually wrote a piece that's on the internet uh, under an assumed name uh, about his experience in this program and i believe that the program was stopped because uh, one of the guys went bad and did it over again and the doctors were sued okay well
2: what, wow. what, what about the experience of of sorcerer which is a film i you rightly very proud of to make if because you grew up loving clouseau's work and wages of fear was it challenging to kind of revisit that territory i mean i know it's not a remake of that film it's a readaptation of the book but was it hard to kind of break away from 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 the shadow of that particular film that you love so much
1: well, it's another version of the film. Mm-hmm. I admire and admired Clouseau, but I did another version of the story uh, in the same way that uh, a new production of Hamlet is not a remake of Hamlet. It's mm-hmm. a new version. You, The actor or the director brings something new to a lot of classic plays and some films as well. You know, so, I mean, all of these James Bond movies, they're not a remake of anything you know they're new versions of the James Bond character often with new actors you know and uh, so that's how I viewed Sorcerer all of the events in Sorcerer are really different from the ones in The Wages of Fear but I still uh, revere Clouzot's film as a masterpiece mm. Mm.
0: The uh, the uh, howling bridge sequence with the howling wind in a Sorcerer, it stands out to me as the sequence that must have been the most difficult to it film was. in your career.
1: Yes, it was. We had to do all of that. Yeah. Today you do it with computer-generated imagery. But then we had to do it mechanically, and it was very dangerous. A lot of the things I did in the 70s, in the early days of my career, were life-threatening and mm. dangerous. And I'm not... I don't think I'd do that again.
0: Where did that compulsion come from to do things like that in the French
1: Connection chase? And well, yeah, the French Connection chase was totally illegal. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, you know, we (laughs) we breezed through twenty-six blocks of New York City traffic with no controls whatsoever. Mm. We just had a siren on top of the car that wasn't visible. And then when we shot the exterior of the car, there was no siren. We did the same thing and let it blow through actual traffic. We never could get permission to do anything I did in the French Connection. Oh my God. Wow. And uh, I wouldn't do that again because I come to the belief that, you know, any no film is worth a squirrel getting a twisted ankle. Yeah, true. And I don't want to, you know bring physical harm to people. But at the time, I wasn't even thinking about stuff like that.
0: Mm. Does that that go back to uh, what you said at the beginning of the interview, that there was a time in your career when you were arrogant and maybe didn't think about the consequences of actions just in order to get that that shot, that perfect shot? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And uh, can can you, going back a a few years after that, I guess, to, to live and die in L.A., what were the differences then between that car chase and the car chase and French connection. I imagine then you had the luxury
1: of shutting down highways and
0: freeways. And
1: We were able to shut down the Long Beach Freeway on weekends from about 7 o'clock in the morning until about 2 or 3 in the afternoon mm-hmm. over several weekends. We had total permission to do that, and I planned it very carefully with the stunt drivers, which I didn't with the French connection. It was not carefully planned yeah. and often the stunt drivers would screw up and the cars would crash and they weren't supposed to, but I only had one car and so we had our special effects man had to come in and pry you know oh the the co- the wheel covering off the wheel of one of the tires oh of the car God. and there were supposed to be no crashes in that scene, and I think there are three that were accidental. Right. But with um, uh, To Live and Die in L.A., it was completely planned and done very carefully with a lot of stunt drivers.
0: Okay. And now with Killer Joe, there, there is a foot chase, but otherwise it's a relatively sedate movie I guess for you was
1: that, was that no there's a part, motorcycle there's a motorcycle uh, yeah. encounter in that but that's not a, a chase film I no. was just getting off on shooting another little piece of a chase it wasn't even in the script <laughs> okay you know and uh, I just liked the, the area where we were shooting and I decided to get a couple of guys who own some hogs and, and go out and have them chase this guy <laughs> around uh, some very visual areas in the location we were filming the rest of it. Mm. Is that one the because it, 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 as we said last night, it's based on a play by Tracy
0: Letts, and obviously we had to expand the movie outwards from the play to mm-hmm. make it more cinematic. So was that was that on your mind then to insert scenes yes. like that? Yes. Yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely. To, to put as much of it outdoors as I could. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, as, and have as much of it be spontaneous mm. uh, in, in terms of its action uh, as I could. Whereas, you know, a play, for the most part, is, is set, you know, and it all takes place on a stage um, and in very confined settings. And I wanted to open up uh, Tracy's work on Killer Joe a bit and explore these characters in the outside world. Mm. It
2: has one of my favorite moments of the year so far in movies, which I is... I
1: wonder what scene that would be. <laughs>
2: it's an, if you're going to say the chicken, it's not the chicken scene, although that's that's oh. going to stay with me
1: forever. I feel we may have, uh, we've had a microphone malfunction. There. Yeah, sorry. that'll be fine, yeah. We're good, we're good, we're good. Yeah, and this was spontaneous. I that didn't was even fun. touch this. That's <laughs> what happens <laughs> when the exorcist <laughs> is mentioned or gets in the room. The The little uh, microphone cover just popped off on its own.
0: The temperature has it's dropped weird. in here a couple of, a
1: couple of degrees. <laughs> it's uh, strange.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so do you have a favorite? Uh, uh, uh,
2: there's a moment, which do you think my favorite moment would be? I
1: don't know. I hmm. thought it was the chicken bone scene. The
2: chicken bone scene is, is definitely right up there. But in terms of like... Unexpected moments: Thomas Hayden Church talking to the, I guess, the probate lawyer about the will. Oh yeah. And uh, there's a thread on the uh, a loose on the collar, his jacket. And then suddenly, um, it's picked off, and, and his entire sleeve falls off, and it's just, it just like everyone in the screening room just corpsed. It was hysterical, and it was like something out of a Marx Brothers movie,
0: right in the <laughs> mid- right in the middle
2: of this film. And and uh, I just wondered how. Important it was to inject those kind of moments of humor into something that is kind of um you know, obviously very serious material. Well
1: they're character moments, Phil, and this guy is something of an idiot. You know. <laughs> and he walks around in shabby old clothes. That was his best jacket that he came to see the insurance man. With and he put on a tie, but he still had his baseball cap on with an American flag. <laughs> yeah, you know. So I mean, that moment was a character moment for him. Uh, and as Scott Fitzgerald, the great American novelist who wrote *The Great Gatsby*, among many other fine books, he had a little uh, card over the uh, wall that uh, was opposite his desk where he typed his novels and this little card said action is character mm. and i when i heard that when i read about that it it really uh, made a deep impression on me what a character does is who he is mm. you don't have to say things about him you don't have to say he's an imbecile or something he's sitting in an, uh, an insurance guy's office and there's a loose Thread on his sleeve, and his wife pulls it, and his sleeve comes off. You know, that's who he is. <laughs> it was not an uncharacteristic moment no. for that character
2: played by Thomas A. No. Church. I mean, it's a little, there are sort of parallels, I guess, with his character in Sideways a little bit, where he's full of those lovely character moments.
1: He's a great actor.
2: Yeah, and he
0: just nails he's, the comic. He's
1: deceptive. You know, he, you don't know he's acting, you can't see the, the strings at work.
0: He's incredibly good at playing Dim.
1: Yeah, Which and he's is, not dim. Absolutely. He's a very bright, well-read man. And uh, it's like I met uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, mm-hmm. who I admired very much before. I, I used to see Ali G over here when it was on TV. <laughs> and then it came to the States, you know, and I watched him on HBO in the States. And I thought, this is the most brilliant, outrageous guy I've ever seen. Who is this guy? I mean... This is sheer genius. And then I met him in the States, and I find out he was a scholar. Mm-hmm. I think he went to Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's uh, an Orthodox Jew. He's very shy, very quiet. He's the opposite of Ali G. It's a performance. And as a performance, it's genius. And that's what Thomas Hayden Church is. He's not the fellow he is asked to play at all.
2: And I hope the same goes for Matthew McConaughey in this film because oh I'm that imbecile never gonna oh, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no no he he he's a very bright guy very deep lot of street cred the character that he plays in Killer Joe he knows that character he grew up around those people in that part of the world
0: mm. there's a, there's a great line in the script that's repeated several times uh, by Dotty to Joe your eyes hurt. Your eyes hurt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. how uh, do you have McConaughey in mind from the, the minute you read the script, or were talking to Tracy Letts about this, and how difficult was it to find someone whose eyes hurt?
1: There were a lot of people who I thought about, and then when I had heard that Matthew had read the script and liked it, it was given to him by one of his agents and he asked for a meeting with me the minute I met him I didn't consider anybody else Mm -hmm. as I say he knew that world he wanted to do this he had done other kinds of work and become rich from playing these romantic comedies for all these years because that's the inevitability of being a very good-looking actor in Hollywood they don't want you to act you just need to show up and be good-looking you know, but a lot of those guys really want to step out and act like mm. DiCaprio's trying to do that now. And uh, Tom Cruise certainly are trying to, to, to do more meaningful work than just be a pretty boy. And Matthew made a lot of money just being a good looking actor. And you're not called upon to do anything except... Show up. Mm. And then cash the check. <laughs>
2: Everybody in this film gets to act. I mean, the dialogue is incredibly rich. But you're shooting one or two takes.
1: And what I tell them is, don't act. No. I don't want to smell acting. <laughs> you can smell acting as a director. I want them to be. I want the, char- the actors to become the characters. There are directors out there that break
2: through those barriers without just by doing so many takes that they kind of reach that state with them and you're doing it in one or two takes
1: well if I did more than one or two takes I'd probably fall asleep on the set (laughs) it's like after we did this live podcast if you said, "Well, now we got to do it again for East Anglia." You know, <laughs> and go I'd fall asleep Bad news. Right. <laughs> uh,
2: you know, <laughs> at, at the know Norfolk listeners. Yeah.
1: yeah, or whatever, you know, if you have to rep- I don't know how these actors do yeah. the same roles in a play for years, a long-running play, or even 6 months or something or even a week. How you get up and do the same performance every single night, mm. I don't know how they do it. it, takes a great discipline. I've directed for the stage, mm. um, and I've directed operas, um, but fortunately with operas, they they don't do that many performances at one time because their voices can't handle it. If they do eight or nine performances of an opera, that's a lot. Yeah. Then they have to rest before they do another opera.
0: Mm. You're talking about McConaughey wanting to break out an act is one thing but he's really brave in this film there, there's a, there's a couple of scenes the chicken scene which we'll get onto in a second but also the seduction scene between I himself I want
1: you to describe the <laughs> chicken bone scene in graphic detail Chris I'll do it Phil you can support him <laughs> can Phil, it I'll just <laughs> yeah. sit back here and enjoy it <laughs> I'm going to write it out Chris you taught me through it well we'll get
0: down in, in, in right. two seconds we'll, we'll do it in a few seconds we'll order some KFC and we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll have right. some fun um, but there's also the, the seduction scene with Dottie where, which for the first time really really exposes Joe's kinky inner side. When, when he first arrives in the scene, he's a very together person. He's like nobody else has ever been in this, this world, the this Smiths' world. Uh, but this scene is extraordinarily fearless for both him and Juno Temple. Uh, can you talk about filming that scene and, and how you coached those, those two through that?
1: First of all, I let Matthew and Juno spend a lot of time together alone. Mm -hmm. Where they really got to know and understand each other. And Matthew, because he's older, almost twice her age, um, helped her a lot by showing his true kind nature to her. So she felt comfortable doing that scene with him, which is very sexual. Yeah. But that is the scene in the film that shows the, the bond between them, yeah. which is not so much about sexuality as it is about family. Yeah. What each of these two twisted characters are looking for is family. She is in a completely dysfunctional family and wants to get the hell out of there. And he is her way out. And though you'd know very little about his own background, you get a sense that he's a loner, that he's had trouble with women in the past, and possibly also may have come out of a dysfunctional family. Mm-hmm. But you don't know that for sure. But you see them bond in that scene over the idea of what they're both really looking for is that kind of connection.
2: Yeah, I got a sense that he was a man that had great evil in his past, but was maybe looking to move to a better place, I guess.
1: He had great evil in his (laughs) present. Yes. As well as most all of us do. The two of you guys, if if I was a fly on the wall, you know, in your psyches, mm-hmm. I'll bet you I'd be scared to death. When we do the chicken scene, <laughs> Yeah, you will be. All right. Well, here's the point. You both look like normal guys. You look like together guys. Most people out in the street do. I imagine Peter Sutcliffe looked like a normal guy who, you know, was a good neighbor and all that until he turned out to be the Yorkshire Ripper. And that's the point of all of my films, that there is good and the potential for great evil in all of us. And it may not be there at all times in our nature, because most of us spend most of our time. Hiding our true natures from the world you, you know that mm. you know and if people didn't do that there'd be no society if people went around as supposedly the cavemen did beating each other over the head which was their natural instinct
2: mm.
1: we wouldn't be here
2: yeah. but
1: gradually people found a way to coexist with one another by covering their true natures And that's what the characters in my films often do. Because I believe that that's what all of us are doing at all times. There are times, you know, let's say you're married or you're in a relationship with someone, and there are moments that you go through where you really violently disagree and maybe even dislike them. But you don't want to give up the relationship. So you compromise your true feelings and don't show them. Yes? Mm-hmm. hmm You know? And that's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. You know it's damn well true. And well, in case my wife's listening, I'm just gonna go mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Well, we all have to. Uh there's a wonderful song uh by Steven Sondheim in his in his musical play Company about what is marriage like? Is it sorrowful or are you grateful for this relationship? And uh the singer who responds to that question sings you're always sorrowful you're always grateful you are at the same time and and that i think is the way we all go through life but that's apparent in the characters that i depict yeah yeah because yeah. that's what i see in human nature and if there's someone out there listening who can prove me wrong i'd be delighted to, to move away from that position
2: <laughs> I love that about about this film and about f- film noir in particular
1: what is film noir what is film noir yeah <laughs> Sorry, can't have this conversation. Freaking. Okay, (laughs) well, film noir, noir is obviously a French word for night, darkness, Mm -hmm. and film noir was a a phrase coined by the French film critics Mm. about certain American black and white films of the forties and fifties that had a lot of blacks, and not only blacks in the photography, but they were mostly took place at night. And they were mostly about the dark night of the soul. Mm. And out of that, certain French critics coined the phrase film noir. Uh, Killer Joe has been called a film noir, but not by me because my French isn't that good
2: <laughs> what would you call not it? as
1: good as yours Phil
2: my French is
0: not that good either in okay. case <laughs> but I do know the word poulet <laughs> well absolutely oh, oui.
1: Oh, oui monsieur here we go here we go
0: so there is there is a scene uh, in the film uh, towards the end how did I describe it Justy? if you see only one film this year in which Matthew McConaughey forces someone to simulate oral sex on him using a chicken leg very good go see Killer Joe um, if so. that's what you're interested in seeing you'll see it there <laughs> it's unlikely else. that's going to happen in another film junk but <laughs> you, you never oh, know Oh <laughs> on Mars <laughs> <laughs> it's not a chicken. Yeah, it'd be something, something completely oh. different. Um, but that that scene is—it's—it's Blackly comic. It's shocking. It's brutal. It's horrifying. It's—it's it's mesmerizing. Um, were you aware of the impact it would have? That this is the one scene that most people would come out of the film talking about when you were filming
1: it. No, it, it was a scene that seemed inevitable, as the the vengeance. Against this one character and the need to humiliate her for what she's done to the rest of them And I I just saw it as a obvious uh, progression of where the story was heading Mm -hmm. as I never thought the exorcist would would be as controversial as it became once I had set the premise for the story and people started to believe that these characters were real Um, then all of this horrific stuff started to take place that I thought the audience would simply realize and accept Mm. and I found that a lot of it just simply shocked them forever and I never expect that because if I find in the script and as I film it that it's inevitable then i you know I, I don't believe that others will will think of it as, as something unusual or mm. shocking but they do people take out of a film very often w- things that the director doesn't even intend like there's a movie my favorite film one of my it's probably my second favorite film is called all about eve uh, yeah. it's a great <clears throat> movie starring betty davis yeah. and george Saunders. And it won, I don't know, eight Academy Awards. And the acting in it, the writing, the direction by Joseph Mankiewicz is superb. And what most people who see that film today take from it is two very brief scenes that introduced Marilyn Monroe Mm -hmm. as a minor character. She was virtually a day player, a walk on. Yeah. And now people remember that young people who are people of Marilyn Monroe's era remember that film for her appearance.
2: But in one of those scenes, Betty Davis does have her incredible line about buckling up, it's going a, a <laughs> to be a bumpy ride. Fasten yeah. uh, your it's going to be a
1: bumpy ride. No, know, it's a great movie. But people are able to look at the screen and focus on what they want to. Mm. You know, unless we put somebody in an extreme close-up, they're going to look at whatever they want to see that's in the frame. So part of what a director is trying to do is to focus focus the audience's attention where he hopes it should be. But we're not always successful at doing that.
2: Mm. Okay. KFC not been in touch with a product time <laughs> for this movie.
1: Well, our uh, product is called KFC. Not... A K-Fry-C. fry, scene, K fry scene, Not yeah. KFC. <laughs> and it, we didn't use KFC in the film. Gina Gershon preferred another brand. <laughs> it shall also be nameless, or they might come after me, and I'd leave the... Uh, studio here in shackles, <laughs> but no, it's not KFC, and we don't call it KFC. It's called K Fry C, which nobody has a patent on. Uh, if one of you enterprising entrepreneurs out there uh, would like to patent it, I imagine it's a free ball. <laughs> but um, but I think cinema
0: for a lot of people boils down to moments. Mm -hmm. They tend not to remember films, they tend to remember moments from a film. For example, when I think about To Live and Die in L.A., I think about the car chase, but I also think about, and here's a spoiler warning for people who may not have seen it, stop listening to this bit, uh, but what happens to William Peterson towards the end of the film, which when I first saw the film, I couldn't believe. I mean, I've seen protagonists get killed in movies before, but very rarely 10 to 15 minutes before the end of the film in such unexpected fashion. So again, is that something that was a very deliberate move on your part?
1: Yes, that was. And obviously the idea that spurred it was uh, the film Psycho, where Janet Leigh, who is was a movie star at the time and was obviously not only uh, one of the leads in the film Mm. but also the character that you're following for the first half hour 35 minutes of the film you're following her story and then all of a sudden she's offed in the shower in the most brutal seeming way imaginable and that shocked me that was a stunning unexpected moment and it occurred to me late in it wasn't in the script Okay. of To Live and Die in L.A. that Peterson would die. I wrote the script, yeah. and, um, w- and I got the story from a guy who was a retired secret service man, and uh, the s- strange behavior of those characters, and he introduced me to a lot of them, but it was never intended that that lead character would die, but it occurred to me one morning in the shower. What am I gonna do? The ending I had was lame. You know,
0: was this in production or before? The film
1: was in production. In
0: production, and
1: there was going to be different scenes involving the Peterson character at the end of the movie. And I thought those scenes are lame. What am (laughs) I going to do? I got to figure out something to do here that'll wake the audience up. Yeah, I mean the car chase is over. You know, what am I going to do that'll hold their attention? Boom, Psycho, (laughs) kill off the bitch you know
0: and, um, and how was uh, how was Mr. Peterson about he that he loved it he yeah. thought
1: it was a great idea as did John Panko mm-hmm. his co-star who got to go on and finish the picture alone something he's the
0: he's the hero it, it, it stays with me I mean you, you talk about Psycho and obviously that's the I think the greatest example of it but when I first saw Psycho I knew that Janet Lee was going to die halfway how through how did you know because uh, the, the shower scene is so uh, yeah. immersed in pop culture you, you know about the shower scene before you see Psycho I think that you most told, people. That's, yeah, that's the yeah. case for most people. But most critics didn't write about it. Uh, I think they had by that point. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I think it's, it's in the 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 cat is out of the bag now <laughs> with the shower scene. But with yeah. but with *To Live and Die in L.A.*, that completely took me by surprise and was such a huge shock. So, job done.
1: <laughs> <I guess. laughs> well, Thank you. I mean, I remember a trailer that Alfred Hitchcock did. You know, in his yeah. very humorous way for *Psycho*. Oh yes, yes. Where, where he warned the he asked the audience, please. Arrive on time. You know, yes, and don't reveal the ending of the film to your neighbors because you will spoil the experience for them. And and theaters, I remember then it was 1960. I was probably less than one year old at that time. And no, but, uh, uh, I remember that the theaters around the country strictly enforced that. It, before that film, people could wander into a movie at any point. They could come in 20 minutes late or whatever, buy a ticket, go and see the film from the middle or whatever, and then stay and see the part that you missed yes. in the next show, but not for Psycho. Mm. The theater owners totally enforced Hitchcock's uh, admonition, yeah. and no one was admitted um, after the film had started. Yeah. Could you have made... I mean, it's
0: obviously such a different era now, but could you have made The Exorcist in the same conditions now if you if you had to? Because people nowadays are ferocious for information. They want to know everything about the film before it comes out. And there are, there are blogs. People tweet about things. It would have been very, very hard to make that
1: film in complete secrecy, wouldn't it? The Exorcist? Yeah. Impossible. Well, it wouldn't have been made under any circumstances today. Mm-hmm. The the studios would never go there. First of all, it doesn't offer easy comfort to people when they leave the theater. There is a kind of catharsis Whether you're a Christian Catholic or not. There's a catharsis in the film Um, but uh, There is no pat happy ending. It is suggested that that good triumphs over evil, but only sometimes, Mm. and not in every uh, instance. So, no, it's not a comforting film. The studios today are offering comfort food, like most of the restaurants you see on the street. What do you see, Mo? You see Burger King, McDonald's, Starbucks, fast food, junk food, uh, even, you know... Fried chicken, you say, Phil? You have fried chicken on the brain, I guess. As long as that's where it stays. Do you think Chris did a good job of describing the scene? And, yeah, he, it was very tastefully done, I thought. was it, very uh, impressive. 18 Genteel. Plots? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <Kept laughs> it 18 uh, That wasn't yeah. the version
2: we heard when we came back from the screening <laughs> yesterday.
1: But, but uh, uh, no, you couldn't make a film like that today. The films made in Hollywood are comfort food. But
2: this is a film that made $440 million. So, the Yeah. Far I mean, more than that.
1: Yeah, but I mean, initially... Far more than that. Well, The, the Exorcist is considered in the top ten of all time oh, exactly. in today's dollars. And it has, I can tell you from the financial statements, that in cinemas, it's taken in over $800 million. Now, the studios get half of that so 400 million is the correct amount that went to the studio but the cinemas mm. they wind up with 50% the studios with the other 50 yes in its day and beyond it's, it's 40 years old and next year next year there'll be a new release of it in theaters it's the 40th anniversary
0: so uh, Mark Kermode is currently gearing himself up for that one as,
1: as well? I think he probably <laughs> has watch. to wean himself <laughs> off of the He gets so much uh, flack his love of it you know <laughs> it th- get that I think them. he's trying as hard as he can to probably knock Killer Joe <laughs> lest he be thought of as my PR man <laughs> <laughs>
2: we've we've got to release you from this pod prison well you could stay as long as you like as no, far I'm, as we're I'm, concerned but where you are we going got, oh. I, I, well, we've just across got to, to
1: McDonald's have a burger
2: we could do that we, we could do that, that. as long we as, do as, do as, long well, as well, it's poultry free or Bodine's Texas barbecue absolutely but I wanted to ask quickly that you you met I mean we talked about Hitchcock and earlier today you talked about your interview with Fritz Lang in I think 1970 in the 19 mid 1970s just before he died you also met Howard Hawks Mm -hmm. on a number of occasions Clouseau you talked about I mean some of the cinematic legends that you you have met down the years and some of the I guess heroes of yours growing up if you could meet any of those this is an invidious question I'm afraid but if you could meet any of those again for like another hour who
1: who would it be several Mm. Steve McQueen Humphrey Bogart I happened to meet James Cagney, who is an idol oh, wow. of mine. And I love his film, White Heat. Did yes. you ever see that? Oh, yes. Uh, folks out there, see White Heat. It's mm. one of the great gangster films, one of the greatest I've ever seen. Anyway, when The Exorcist came out, I was on a television program, and James Cagney was on the same program. And when I arrived at the studio... Uh, the producer who greeted me at the door said, Oh, Mr. Cagney is in the green room in makeup, and he'd like, he's going on first, but he'd like to meet you and talk to you if you don't mind. Don't mind, that was an honor. So I went back to meet Mr. Cagney. He was sitting in a makeup chair and a, a bit elderly at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, he said, Sit down, son. And I I sat down and he said I got a bone to pick with you, and he wasn't looking directly at me He was looking at me in the makeup mirror, and he said you know uh, I've had the same barber for 27 years. And he said, and he saw your damn movie, The Exorcist, and he was so moved by it that he left the profession and and entered the priesthood. And he said, and I haven't been able to find as good a barber since. And I said, I'm sorry, sir. I, I... really, it's not my fault, (laughs) but uh, he said, I'm serious. He said, he was a damn good barber, and your film made him go out and join the priesthood of all things. So, I mean, he was a a guy who I was proud to be. One of, two of the most delightful people I ever met, and I, I spent, well, three that I was able to spend quite a bit of time with were Cary Grant who I used to see regularly at the racetrack at Hollywood Park, and Fred Astaire. These were two enormous idols of mine. And then I got to know Frank Sinatra. Uh, And believe me, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's Sinatra's world, and we're all just visitors. (laughs) And uh, he was a great guy, and I I still uh, know his daughter Tina very well. They're very close, Tina and her sister but especially her uh, we're very close friends yeah. Did uh, talk talk ever rise of collaborations? I'll tell you something this is little known uh, before I did the French Connection, my producer and I were going to produce and direct Dirty Harry with Frank Sinatra he had signed to do it mm. and he was going to take a chance on me directing it and uh, we were negotiating with Warner Brothers and he decided for some reason not to do it. And there was a lawsuit that was only settled a few years ago between Warner Brothers and the Sinatra estate. Right. But anyway, uh, Sinatra back, walked away and Clint Eastwood came along and with Don Siegel, the yeah. director. They took it over and my producer and I, in that same year went off and did the french connection. <laughs> <laughs> so we never would have done the french connection had we gone on with Sinatra, who is really he, he is probably the one guy that I, I really uh, think of as a, as a god, a small g of course, Absolutely. of um, of entertainment. He was great great actor great as well actor, as singer. Yeah. The best Popular entertainer I've ever seen. Did you guys ever see him live or on film? Something no, exactly. no, no, no. on film. My
2: grandfather yeah, did. He idolized him. Idolized him. Yeah, but, so yeah. Made, you're
1: comparing me with your grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably older than your friggin' grandfather. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, uh, uh, wait a minute now, Phil. You really know how to hurt a guy. <laughs> no, look, Sinatra's image is out there on DVDs, on yeah. home videos, many of his finest acting performances. Uh I I know you're a Justin Bieber fan, so <laughs> Phil forget, can't get enough. You can't oh, get enough Bieber, of the, you it. You like the haircut. I'm a believer. You are a believer? you <laughs> <laughs> like the haircut?
2: I I don't really I yeah. I not really has he got a good haircut? He's like a you
1: don't know. <laughs> it's a different I think it's a new haircut and possibly oh, okay. a I new seen, image. I haven't seen it? a new
0: haircut. I, I need to keep up with these. I don't follow him on Twitter, God, so guys, I'm not I'm not aware of the uh
1: you guys are running a, a very popular magazine. He he hasn't entered our uh, our
0: sphere of, of, of interest yet. He's not in it? No, he's not he's not you know, maybe as an oversight. We'll, we'll
1: we'll be sure to include I, Justin the in I think others. it's about time Empire gave me another Life Achievement Award. I it's, think so. It's been over twenty years I think since I got a Life Achievement <laughs> Award. Absolutely. I guess you guys thought I was gonna you die can't. then. <laughs> it's a just in case award. I, I should now it. get a longevity award from Empire <laughs> magazine.
0: We'll see what we can We get them out next year. Year. We give him a, a February and March Longevity award so we'll, Yeah, Awards. yeah, well, yeah. yeah we'll, we'll, we'll make sure We'll, we'll, we'll get you
1: along All for right, that uh, What but, is it The here's your hat What's your hurry award
0: <laughs> Precisely I'm, I, I'm fascinated by the idea I, I always have been of, of Sinatra as Dirty Harry Because again I just associate that role With Clint Eastwood I mean it's sure. so indelible What would your Dirty Harry What would Sinatra's Dirty Harry Have been like Had, had you got down that far About discussions About how he'd played a role Or what, what he would do
1: It certainly would have been different because Sinatra was much more of a street guy, a New Jersey street guy, than Eastwood was. Mm. Eastwood, you know, uh, was more of a cowboy. And uh, I think Sinatra's, though Eastwood's Dirty Harry is certainly iconic, you know, and it's certainly broke through and registered I think Sinatra's would have as well and I think it might have been I think the character might have been even a bit more terrifying Mm. on the other hand Sinatra had all the goodwill of the audience with him whenever he he did mm-hmm. a dramatic role. And so I don't know how the audience would have responded. W- w- Eastwood was not a big star when he did Dirty Harry. He had done some of the spaghetti westerns yes. with Sergio Leone and he was a cowboy. Uh, and the audience, well he had a television series on for years before he did those films called Rawhide. Mm-hmm. And he was a likable sort of amiable Uh, ranch hand, cowboy. Um, Dirty Harry was a stretch for him. And it it came off brilliantly, obviously. It would not have been a stretch for Sinatra. Mm. Frank was volatile in real life. He was like a thundercloud that could weep or kill. You know? He Mm. just had that built into his nature. He was a very interesting man and... uh, a great actor and the greatest performer I've ever seen. But now all of you have Bieber, so <laughs> you don't have to, you don't need, have to worry about Frank? stuff like that.
0: <laughs> who needs Frank? Would you've had the uh, the speech, uh, the, uh, you know, I uh, fired five shots or six shots, uh, I can't remember, the, the the Magnum speech at Dirty Harry. Yeah, you're Feeling Lucky. Feeling Lucky Punk, yeah.
1: Punk, yeah.
0: Go ahead. Make My Day. That was in there. I'm yeah. just thinking about Justin Bieber in
2: The Man with the Golden Arm remake.
1: That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what would happen.
2: But it replaced the harem with sweets.
1: There are all sorts of guys playing these iconic um, macho roles that are so far removed from their prototypes, from the guys who played them back in the 40s and 50s and who were very close to... In nature to the characters they played. Yeah. Mm. I remember... Do you remember an actor named George Raft? Oh, yeah.
2: Yep.
1: Uh, and he had a habit in his films where he played a gangster of flipping a coin. Yeah. He would continuously flip a coin and catch it in the same hand and flip it again mm. and keep flipping it. And he got that, he said, from uh, watching a, a guy on his block who was a hood. And this guy used to do that. And that's where he got... The notion and brought it into film. A absolutely. lot of those characters brought their own experiences into the films they made. They were not so much acting as giving a yeah. strong impression of characters they knew. They mm-hmm. weren't acting,
0: absolutely. And of course, he did it again in *Some Like It Hot*. I believe the uh, the, yeah. the, the coin flipping. So
1: you know, he yeah. he did that here in London way before your time, at the Playboy Club. And uh, there was another club in. Uh, In the Curzon area, Mm -hmm. a gambling club in the 60s. I don't remember whether it was Playboy or another gambling club. They, They were all over the Curzon area and and elsewhere and they had hired george raft after his movie career was over to stand in the doorway and flip the coin and he used to do that (laughs) just as you've heard the name joe lewis the boxing champion yeah he was hired in las vegas by a hotel in vegas long after his boxing career to stand in the doorway and just shake hands with people who'd come in to gamble hey champ you know and they get to touch greatness.
0: Nowadays, it's, uh, people sit at desks at Comic-Con <laughs> in San Diego and sign autographs for 10 or $20 a pop. Really? That's, that's the equivalent these days, I guess, yeah. If you go to Comic-Con in San Diego, there's a... I've been an there. T- there's an don't atrium. give me
1: $20. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> you, may, you don't want to be in this place, uh, but believe me, it's an atrium upstairs, we call it uh, Desolation Alley, and uh, people who had bit parts in shows like Battlestar Galactica or Star Trek will sit there, it's it's, it's quite a touching sight, and they sell their autographs for 10 or $20 wow. a pop.
1: Well, uh, I'm going to take you guys up on your offer to stand in front of the Empire Magazine uh, building and turn my head 360 degrees <laughs> as people come in. That
0: sounds like a, an offer I can't refuse. I believe it was one pound per degree. So uh, yeah, yeah, well, we're that's good. Pretty cool. We're good for that. Uh, well, uh, there's just nothing left to ask, uh, William. Except, what's next for you?
1: Well, you know, I've just finished my autobiography. Oh, that's going to be interesting. And, long, uh, I it's, It'll be out next year Okay. Uh, by HarperCollins in the States, and hopefully all over. But it'll be published in the United States uh, next spring. And I'm in the final editing stages, but I've turned it in, and they, they love the book. They've helped me a lot with it. But I wrote it alone in longhand, and I've just <laughs> recently finished it. So, and then I'm planning a new film that's called Trapped. Okay. And that'll be shot um, somewhere in Europe. Well, somewhere called Brussels, Belgium.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, when's that getting underway? January. January. Fantastic. And do you have a a good pun title
2: for your autobiography, or are you going straight?
1: My autobiography is being called Connections. But it's obviously a reference to the French Connection, but it's really about the people that I met along the way from when I first started, when I came out of high school, had no university, and just met certain people who uh, were able to um, give me a hand to go from one level to another to another, that I learned from along the way and who helped me. And so the book is, you know, about to a large extent, about the people who helped to shape my career. Oh, wow. So I'm calling it Connections.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, uh, when it it's comes out... It's going to be
1: serialized in Empire. Well, well, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> but when it comes out,
0: you've got to come back and talk to us again on the podcast. Be it's a been pleasure. It has been a pleasure. Uh, William Freakin, thank you very much the Thanks,
1: Chris. Thank you, Phil.
0: Thank you. Let's go get some chicken now, yeah?
1: Yeah, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs>